Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome. As much as it's lovely to sit together and listen to music in a Zoom room, it's also nice to get to the reason why we're here, um, which is to hear some readings from some books and have some conversations. Um, it's so nice that you're all joining us in this time where it's been very hard to gather. And I know it's not quite the same as being here all in person, but it sure is nice to be able to have some far-flung folks from Iowa City, the Bay Area, Vancouver, and as far as up the street in Echo Park. Um, I'm Agnes from Skylight Books in Los Feliz, Los Angeles, and we are so thrilled to have our uh, authors tonight from the Objects Lesson series. Uh, we'll get to hear a little bit from each of them, um, readings from their books, and then we'll get to hear them chat a little bit, have some conversation together, and then I'll open it up uh, to questions and comments and responses from you all. And we can do that either in the chat or in vo vocally live. Um, but we'll get there to the technical side of that when we get there. Um, in the meantime, just a little bit of an orientation. Um, if you haven't seen them, these are these very handsome books. Uh, and here's the, the way in which they're described. Object Lessons is a series of concise, collectible, and beautifully designed books about the hidden lives of ordinary things. Each book starts from a specific inspiration, an historical event, literary passage, personal narrative, a technological innovation, and from that starting point, explores the object of the title, gleaning a singular lesson or multiple lessons along the way. Object Lessons tells the story of how we got here, one object at a time. Uh, and the next time you're able to come into Skylight Books, which if you are in town, we're finally open this week. Uh, you can come in from 10 to 5 and finally browse our store again uh, or order over the phone or online. Uh, I hope you take a look. It's a really beautiful series, and I always um, love flipping through them when it comes time to shelve them and they come into the store. Um, all right, without further ado, let's dive in. We decided um, to go in alphabetical order of the objects we're hearing about. So I think it's like a nice, um, a nice way of foregrounding this sort of material reality of what we're discussing uh, in a world where we're all a little bit immaterial on these screens. So um, I'm gonna start with Eric Anderson, who's written about Bird. Um, Eric Anderson is the author of three prior books of nonfiction, The Poetics of Trespass, a Stranger, and Flutter Point Essays. He teaches creative writing at Franklin and Marshall College, where from 2014 to 2019, he directed the annual Emerging Writers Festival. Let's have a very warm, if not vocal, if not auditory welcome, at least sort of cosmic across the airways, welcome for Eric Anderson. Um, thank you. 
it's so good to be here. Thank you, Agnes and uh, Skylight Books for hosting us. Um, I'm going to read very briefly from uh, this book, Bird, um, and I will just say as a, a sort of uh, framing for what I'm going to read, the book is divided up into um, sort of four longer narrative nonfiction, kind of long form journalism sections. And interspersed um, between them are these sort of um, bird field guide-like entries. Um, and I'm going to read one of those um, tonight. Um, I just have to give a shout out to my high school English teacher, uh, Karen Van Putten, who I've not seen in more than 20 years. And I am just so delighted uh, by your presence. Um, without uh, Karen's encouragement, honestly, I would not be where I am uh, today in any way, shape, or form. So it is just such a delight um, to see you. Thank you for coming. And thank you to everyone else as well um, who uh, is joining us uh, this evening. Um, so uh, I'm going to read Lesser Snow Goose. Um, and yeah, I'm just going to dive in. It's the scene where Macduff, foiled to Macbeth's eponymous villain, has come to convince Malcolm, elder son of the slain Scottish king, to seek revenge. Malcolm hesitates. Who is he to judge, he wonders, when all the particulars of vice are so grafted in himself, when there's no bottom, none, to his voluptuousness, to the cistern of his lust, that black Macbeth will seem as pure as snow, a veritable lamb by comparison. In the West, tradition holds that brides wear white to signify a virgin body and a chaste heart, that the bird returning to the ark with an olive branch, eternal symbol of peace and love, was a dove. But as for the often overlooked blackbirds, family icteridae, writes J. Drew Lanham, they are not just maligned for their blackness, they are declining across the board. And then there are crows, he says, among the smartest things with feathers and wings, that they, along with other birds that just happen to be black, are largely ignored and often persecuted. Well, Lanham writes, sounds like profiling to me. To appreciate nature, Lanham reminds us, is to partake in a tradition founded by and for white elites. And while the natural world isn't white, nature as a concept may be. My choice of career and my passion for wildness, Lanham says, means that I will forever be the odd bird, the raven in a horde of white doves, the blackbird in a flock of snow buntings. Because for Lanham, the preconceived notions of where I should go, of what I should do, and even who I should do it with, don't include forests, marshes, or mountains, the disquieting question is where in nature, a black person belongs, and where, conversely, a white one does. But if the case of the lesser snow goose is any indication, we've been profiling the wrong birds. It would be one thing if these innocent-looking geese, as one researcher describes them, presumably because of their white plumage, were, to borrow Malcolm's term, merely voluptuous. But they're more vicious and coercive than that. Although the birds mate for life, what scientists call 
forced copulations are rampant, typically occurring while the male is away from the nest, often pursuing a forced copulation of his own. To his credit, if and when the resident gander sees his mate attacked, he immediately returns, pecking and kicking and beating the intruder so vigorously that, at least in one instance, it resulted in something researchers might have euphemistically termed forced death. Alas, poor country, almost afraid to know itself, intones a third character, Ross, as a segue to telling, Macbeth, to telling Macduff that while he has been biding his time, his family's been murdered by the bloodthirsty king. Our country, he continues, anticipating our own, where violent sorrow seems a modern ecstasy. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. Um, I'm going to keep rolling. Well, I'll get to talk later. I, I have tempted to want to say all sorts of things after hearing that, but it's, let's keep moving. Um, next up, we're going to hear uh, about Cell Tower with Stephen Jones. Uh, Stephen Jones is De Bartolo Chair in Liberal Arts and professor, professor of English and Digital Humanities in the Department of English at the University of South Florida. He is author or editor of 11 books on literature, technology, media, and the digital humanities. Let's beam a warm digital welcome to Stephen Jones. Thanks. Can you, can you hear me? Did the unmute work? Excellent. So my book, uh, uh, thanks Agnes very much and thanks, thanks to uh, uh, Sky Books. I'm really happy to be participating and this event tonight and for everybody who came. Uh, my, my book is about the cell tower as an object, but in a way it's about uh, what the cell tower opens up for us, which is all that infrastructure that we become increasingly surrounded with every day. So it's a kind of travelogue and I notice cell towers everywhere I go. So I'll start, it starts in Florida where I live and it ends in the Keys uh, where I, near where I live as well. Someone I know in rural Appalachia can stand in her kitchen, look out through the screen door and point across adjacent fields to her tower, silhouetted up on a mountain ridge, a tapered latticework structure with a triangular rack around the top, like an 18th century tricorn hat, mounted with three sets of oblong white antenna panels. Cell sites in that area are so sparse, she's probably right. She likely does know where her connection comes from, at least when she's in the house and the yard. If she drives to the Walmart 30 miles away, she'll probably drop the signal more than once, either because she gets out of range of that tower and isn't in range of another, or because the rock-faced mountains interfere, creating radio shadows where the signal just can't reach. I, on the other hand, drive past 30 cell towers on my 40-mile commute. That's 30 actual towers, not counting various antenna rays mounted on rooftops around the perimeter of water tower tanks. I see those too. This is in Florida, which is close to sea level everywhere, and I travel mostly on an elevated highway, so I can see pretty far to the horizon in most places. Tall objects really stand out. In the metropolitan area of Tampa Bay, with very little public transportation, unlike in cities where I've lived before, I have to make this drive several times a week. 
and I always feel guilty about it. One day, sitting in traffic on the bridge and plotting the purchase of an electric vehicle, I looked up and noticed all the cell towers. It dawned on me, all this infrastructure, bridge, a highway, the towers, none of it is beneath me, beneath my everyday life, as the prefix infra might imply. It is my everyday life. I'm inside it. The 30 is a lot of towers. Depending on where you live, you may have that many cell towers near you too, maybe more. But do you ever really notice? Mostly we don't, or rather, we prefer to unsee them, to look right through them and immediately forget we've ever seen them. The cell tower is a giant piece of infrastructure we depend on every day, but we're so invested in the idea that the cell phone experience should be seamless, invisible, ethereal, and ubiquitous, that we just screen it out. We just don't see it looming there. We unsee it. I began this book because I started noticing those cell towers. Eventually, I made a kind of game of it, developing a habit I jokingly called cell spotting. Like a train spotter, you know, a nerdy railway hobbyist, especially in the UK, who treats transportation infrastructure the way bird watchers treat rare species in the wild, recording the models and individual serial numbers of locomotives they see on platforms or passing by on the tracks. I look out for cell towers anywhere I travel now. It all started with those 30 towers. On that 50 minute drive from a small barrier island on the Gulf of Mexico to the urban campus where I teach, traveling over the causeway and a three mile bridge across the sparkling waters of Tampa Bay. On the bridge, I often see brown pelicans flying along beside the car at eye level, then disappearing as they dive for fish. Sometimes an osprey sits on a light pole to eat a fish it just caught down between the concrete pilings. I'll stop there. Thank you. I love you talk about being inside the web of the net and here we are with birds sort of weaving their way from <laughs> Eric to you, Stephen. So exactly. Um, thank you. Next up we have coffee with Dinah Lenny. Dinah Lenny is the author of The Object Parade and Bigger Than Life, A Murder, a Memoir. She also co-edited Brief Encounters, a collection of contemporary nonfiction with the late Judith Kitchen. She teaches nonfiction for the Bennington Writing Seminars and serves as editor-at-large for the Los Angeles Review of Books. Let's have a warm welcome for Dinah Lenny. Thank you. Can you hear me? Mutes, mutes work? Great, great. Um, I loved hearing those two pieces, Eric and Steve, thank you. And, and Agnes, thank you to you and to Skylight. This is my, Skylight is my neighborhood store. This is where I buy my books. Um, so I'm really delighted that you found time to do this with us. And, and it's so generous. And it's so generous of all of you. I'm looking at names and faces. It's so, it's so generous of all of you to come. Thank you so much for being here. Um, coffee. Uh, is about coffee um, and it's about memory and it's about place and you know I'm you know I'm 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 I, I don't want to apologize it's about me um, it's you know there's it's there's a memoir component to it I'm gonna read to you from a chapter that's 
it's pretty much in the middle of the book and it's called Coffee in Paris. And I'm just gonna um, plop you down in the middle of Paris. But out in the world, in all those cafes, did we notice the coffee was lousy? No, no way. Like the Americans we are, we ordered cafe au lait, which thinking back taste-wise wasn't anything special. And we didn't mind a bit. We even enjoyed it, savored it. Didn't we keep having creme after creme because everything else was so wonderful. The light, the air, the trees, the flowers, the bread, my God, the bread. The omelets, the salads, the glass vanille, the action inside and out on the street. Paris, a million places to drink coffee. Everyone is co drinking coffee everywhere, but they don't make a deal of it. There aren't 47 varieties to choose from or five different kinds of milk. And starting well before lunch, they're just as likely to be pouring rosé or beer or lemonada. They're not promoting a brand of anything, only a whole way of life, that's all. In Paris, you don't have to order up a cappuccino with soy or whatever to be the kind of person who takes time to be a person in the middle of the day. So the coffee mostly tastes the same from place to place, a bit better here, a bit worse there. It's just as a friend told me, ask people about the best cup of coffee they've ever had, and they don't talk about taste. One of the best coffees I ever had, brought to you, to me, by Café Rostand in Paris, where we sat just behind a little old woman in a yellow cap, who was first delighted by the young foreigners at the adjacent table, and then, after they left, by an equally ancient gentleman whom she greeted with such effusiveness. Assez-toi, she said, pat patting the chair beside her, and gingerly they kissed each other's worn cheeks, spotted and crinkled, and she told him about the girls who had only just left, les jeunes filles adorables, and then, minutes later, they rose together and ambled, shuffled, hobbled away, arm in arm, with their canes. We finished our salads, Niçoise for me, the house special for him. Uh, him is Fred, my husband. He is Fred. Uh, uh, tiny crevette in a mayonnaise dressing on a bed of butter lettuce, and my God, the bread. And then we ordered two cafe creme, which came each with a cookie in the saucer and its own little pitcher of very hot milk. Across the street, there was a clown entertaining the crowd walking in and out of the Luxembourg gardens. We could have sat there all day. A week or so later, during dinner with friends in a bistro not far from the Seine, I mentioned I was writing a book about coffee. You should call it carte noire, said the woman sitting next to me. Carte noire? Really? That's the coffee we buy in Paris when we realize we're all out of coffee and it's late and only the mini mart on the corner is open and that's all they have. I don't say that to her, but carte noire, it's the supermarket brand, cheap, easy, ubiquitous. It's regular old French coffee, she says, and it's wonderful. Is it? We happen to have a bag at the flat. When we get back, I'd stick my nose in the grounds. Carte noire smells bitter and stale. I'll drink it, but I won't like it. That's what I think. The next morning, Fred's making his own little one cup. We've got a bag from Coutume and another from Hexagon, both specialty shops on the right bank. But wouldn't you know the power of suggestion? He goes for the carte noire. How's your coffee, I ask? Delicious, he says. Can we get this in LA? In fact, I don't think we can. According to the site online, it's available in France or the United Kingdom only. And how about this no-nonsense labeling, simply Ronde Généreux or Ronde Equilibre, none of the stuff about flowers and fruit. But what does it mean? How does round taste? And how is the flavor of generosity different from balance? And which would you choose? And anyway, it isn't very good, really not. But it isn't Carte Noire Fred wants back in Los Angeles. It's Paris. 
It's the view from the flat down Boulevard Gay-Lussac, the quick jaunt from there to the Medici fountain, the bread he'll bring back from the boulangerie on the corner, une baguette traditionnelle. It's Paris he's tasting, Paris he wants to take home. Thanks. Thank you. It strikes me that the quality of attention that and expansion that you're each giving to these objects is, feels like the that phrase you used earlier, Diana, about the, quality, the, the taking the time to be a person in the middle of the day, you know, like in the midst of our lives. That's when you sit and read and hear people read. That's, that's a little taste of what you get. So thank you. It's wonderful. Um, next up, we go to environment, also available in most um, mini marts in Paris, uh, which is brought to us by um, Rolf Halden. Ralph Halden is a professor and director of the Biodesign Center for Environmental Health Engineering at Arizona State University and founder of the ASU Foundation's nonprofit project One Water, One Health. It provides COVID-9 wastewater testing for underserved U.S. communities. So have a warm welcome for uh, Ralph. Thank you. Hello, everybody. It's, it's great to be here. It's great to see faces. Um, it's uh, become lonely in the environments that we all individually experience. Uh, so my book uh, I wrote uh, <laughs> out of frustration, really. Uh, I've been studying the environment and people's health for many, many years. And I, I look at toxins. I look at where toxins are produced, how they move through the environment, how they end up in places where they are not supposed to be, like children and the newborns. And so we analyze, for example, blood from newborns and see a plethora of toxins that already have been stored up in the belly and in the fat tissue of the mother and that get transferred to the baby. And so I'm, as a scientist, I'm struggling with the communicating what I see in the laboratory, which seems unbelievable that we are so, you know, at, at such a massive scale um, with so many different chemicals violating not only our environment, but ourselves too, because the two are really inseparable. And uh, so out of this frustration and the event of the uh, Earth Day 50, I, I wrote this book uh, last year and uh, it arrived. And our environment has changed <laughs> a lot since we uh, got this book uh, to, to press. And, and I'd like to read to you just a short passage from the, the end and then something from the beginning. And it takes on a completely different meaning now in the pandemic times that we're in. Um, but I think uh, that many more people are now aware of uh, what the environment is and what it does to us and how we influence the environment. And maybe to understand the, the first paragraph that I read, it's, uh, I have to say that I'm a wastewater-based epidemiologist. So I look at your health, at population health, by studying wastewater. Now, only a few months back, nobody knew what that was. But now you probably have read about it because a lot of people, including myself, are measuring uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus this, that causes COVID-19 um, in wastewater around the world. And we actually have stood up the first dashboard that displays these data for a community at different neighborhood levels in Tempe, Arizona. So um, go to uh, covid19.tempe.gov. And I put this into the chat box when I'm done here. And you can actually look at where, you know, how many virus particles are present in wastewater right now, giving us a sense of how we are interacting with the environment and how we create an environment for each other. So this comes from uh, chapter 14, one with the environment. Our studies of human populations worldwide show that we cannot hide from our actions, cannot hide from the chemistry we are and produce. 
regardless of where the emissions of persistent and harmful chemicals originate globally, we all get exposed. The actions taken by people living on the opposite side of the world affect our health and our consumption affects the health of our antipodes. We create each other's environment and we are responsible for and dictate each other's health. This applies at different scales and to different threats. Carcinogenic dioxins created by wildfires burning in the Amazon and by trash burning in Indonesia will be carried around the world to reach us and to accumulate in our bodies. As the Amazon continues to burn, loss of this green lung will make it difficult for us to breathe and it will change our weather. A person sick with the flu deciding to go to work anyway will spread a virus that may go on to kill a susceptible elderly person or a prematurely born infant. And then from the moving to the beginning, um, a short passage, <clears throat> it's good not to be alone. There are many of us and we are not defenseless, not anymore. As we grow and mature, a transformation sets in though. Roles become reversed and they do so at different scales. Once just timid prey, subject to nature's whims, we now have evolved into a species representing the planet's top predator. We have usurped full control over what we call the environment. But one existential lesson still remains to be learned. The boundaries we have internalized and observed are imaginary. They do not exist. The concept of self and the surrounding environment is a cherished delusion. The environment is simply not just out there. We breathe it, we eat it, we drink it, we wear it, we create it. We and the environment are one and the same. And so that I, I think uh, is a lesson <laughs> that I tried to make and then the virus made it for me much better than this book could. So thank you. Thank you. I guess we're all co-writing with the world as it unfolds around us, but I, that's such a profound reflection. I think I can feel in everybody's that idea of these illusory boundaries between ourselves and the world. And um, so, yeah, thank you. That was wonderful. Um, next up, we're going to turn to Steve Mentz, um, who will give us our last reading and then um, we'll pivot us into some conversation among the writers. So um, I'm excited to, to pass it over to him. Uh, Steve is writing about ocean. Steve Mentz teaches at St. John's University in New York City. He writes mostly about watery things and his books include Oceanic New York and Shipwreck Modernity. He also writes about Shakespeare, the blue humanities and environmental theory. Let's have a warm welcome for Steve Mentz. Uh, thank, thank you so much. Can everybody hear me? I think I'm working. Um, uh, it's really such a pleasure to uh, be here in this virtual space uh, from the other side of the country um, and to be gathered with these uh, amazing authors and, and all the people who are so generous with your time to listen to us. Um, I am, feel particularly sort of privileged to go last at the end of this uh, lineup of objects because I, one of the things I love most about being part of this series is the incredible way it guides our attention, right? From bird to cell tower to coffee to environment to ocean. I'm gonna do my best not to sort of drop the baton on the relay um, while I think about the way in which um, ocean can be conceived as an object um, in both the sort of personal way that I think Rolf was talking about, the, the object that reminds us that we are not singular selves. Um, 
and maybe also um, to some degree in the um, intimate ways that that um, that Eric and Steve and Dinah have also shown us in their in their beautiful readings. Um, so my book is a history. I start with the origin of the ocean four and a half billion years ago, um, shortly after planetary formation, and I go more or less up into the present into my own sort of daily practice as an open water swimmer in Long Island Sound here on the East Coast. The passage I'm gonna to read today is just a tiny little bit out of the section on the 19th century. Um, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about the 19th century here as a kind of pivot, a period of extraordinary um, sea travel in human history, um, probably the greatest uh, period of um, sea travel in human history. Um, 19th into the early 20th century before it gets overtaken by airplanes. And I'm thinking here about a dream or a kind of fantasy of the 19th century, which is the idea that a human can really be partly a marine creature. And the two primary examples that I'm gonna use for that are the um, harpooner Quickleg from uh, Melville's Moby Dick and the Little Mermaid from the Hans Christian Andersen's tale. And my argument in this piece is that these two figures are um, are deeply similar and actually have the same kind of um, relationship with us. Anyway, so this is the chapter is called Queequeg and Other Mermaids. Romantic sea fever followed European maritime empires around the globe during the 19th century. Visions of human intimacy with the ocean faced off against snowy alpine peaks as the essential vistas of the romantic sublime. Keats's eternal whisperings and mighty swell in his poem, The Sea, associated the marine with human longings, and Alfred Lord Tennyson's crossing the bar and made mortality itself assume an oceanic shape, with death arriving as a tide that moving seems asleep, too full for sound and foam. Lurking behind these poetic portraits of the human ocean encounter was the fantasy of a truly marine human a fish-man hybrid who could be at home in the waves. The Ovidian figure of Glaucus, a mortal fisherman who becomes a sea god after ingesting a magical herb, becomes in William Diaper's Piscatorial Nereids or the Sea Eclogues, a poetic representation of marine utopia where unmixed waters are as crystal clear. Mermaids, sirens, selkies, and other half-human oceanic creatures were already familiar in ancient and Renaissance uh, folklore and mythology. In fact, Columbus claimed to have sighted mermaids off Hispaniola in 1493. But the surge in literacy and popular print culture in the 19th century increased the visibility of these creatures. The celebrated Hans Christian Andersen fable, The Little Mermaid, first published in 1837, presents a paradigmatic 19th century love tragedy underwritten by the desire to merge humans with the sea. The tale of the mermaid who loves a human prince enough to lose her tongue and to walk on knives propels itself through the alien lure of the oceanic world. Um, the, the, sorry, popular stories about mermaids from Oscar Wilde's The Fisherman and His Soul to H.G. Wells' The Sea Lady and Edith Nesbitt's Wet Magic, all written in the turn of the, 19th, turn of the 20th century, reveal the continuing currency of a fantasy that would arrive in comic book form in the United States with DC's Aquaman in 1941, and on the big Hollywood screen in James Wan's $200 million blockbuster Aquaman starring Jason Momoa, which opened in the United States the week that I drafted this chapter. 
No mermaid of any era seems more aquatic or alluring than Queequeg, the cannibal hero who joins the narrator Ishmael to sail the world's oceans in Moby Dick. The bond between Queequeg and Ishmael captures the alien flavor of the human passion for the sea. When Ishmael calls his, pagan, his cannibal friend a pagan, we might substitute the word oceanic. I'll try a pagan friend, says Ishmael, since Christian kindness has proved but hollow courtesy. Queequeg the mermaid guides Ishmael into oceanic generosity and not only human vastness of vision. Queequeg and the little mermaid make an odd pair with his bald head against her flowing hair and her fish's tail alongside his indecipherable tattoos. They have more in common than may, than may appear at first. Both figures are otherworldly and oceanic. Both rescue lost sailors and both relate to particular human beings through a radicalized version of romantic love, homoerotic in Quakeweg's case and silent in the mermaids. For Melville and for Anderson, these figures balance on the oceanic cusp, luring human swimmers just a bit farther into deep water than we can abide. The mermaid and the cannibal draw human love for the ocean out to the edge of human capacities. We love these figures and they love us, because they dive deeper than we can. These not only humans bring us into the water for as long as we can endure it. Thank you. Um, and then since I am the last in the lineup of five, um, it's gonna fall to me to sort of bounce back a little bit to the five of us so that we can have a little conversation among ourselves before we open it up to some questions that I hope will um, soon populate the, the chat box on the, the side of the screen here. Um, and so my sort of opening question for, um, for the five of us is um, to think about how living with these objects, writing about them, you know, publishing a book about them, seeing this book go out into the world and having people talk to us about it. How has that object changed um, for each of us over the course of the you know, a couple of years maybe that we've been thinking and writing and publishing and, and listening to people respond to these things. And also how might it have changed you? I mean, how does the, how does the ocean, you know, I'm, I'm really um, obsessed in this book with trying to figure out the relationship between the human and the ocean. And I think a lot about the ways in which the ocean is changing in the current pressures of things like climate change. But I also think a lot about how attention to the ocean changes me as a person and as a writer and as a teacher and a dad and everything like that. So um, I just wondered if people wanted to comment on how your object has changed over this time and how you have changed in relationship to it. Such a great question, um, Steve. Yeah, it is. I, I think we, we've had a, if I can jump in, we had a discussion amongst some of us online about this, but it, the, the cell tower thing for me has, is, is also about romanticism, Steve. Um, I mean, you know, because I think that this is a way, this is a kind of uh, urge to transcendence that leads us to deny the materialities of the infrastructure, you know, so that what we want is the magical invisible connection that allows us to escape uh, from mundane reality. So it's, it made me, writing this has made me really self-conscious about my own desires in that direction. And then, of course, more recently, as I said in our earlier discussion uh, online, it, 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 the, the 
burning of the 5G towers, especially in the UK, uh, seemed like a kind of fulfillment of of the uh, kind of prophecy in 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 some ways. I, I also have written about the Luddites, about the historical Luddites, and so this is a very old sort of problem. But uh, the, the idea that somehow the virus is connected to the 5G network, you know, is 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 actually it's crazy in some ways. And on the other hand, the whole point of cell cellular infrastructure is to remain out of sight and secretive. Uh, and the, and it's, you know, they, they have a motto about security through obscurity. They borrow from the military industrial complex in general. So the idea is that they, you know, the whole point of this is that we're, we are supposed to, it's shrouded in various kinds of secrecy. And there are uh, so people's, people's paranoia uh, is not about nothing, in other words, even if it's not scientifically grounded in this case, uh, which, which it isn't. Uh, so those reactions are just among, I mean, nowadays there's so many reactions and so many things going on, seems like a drop in the bucket, but it really struck me as a kind of manifestation of people's anxieties about the secrecy of infrastructure. Yeah, Dinah, were you gonna say something? Uh, you know, I so uh, co coffee. Um, coffee is 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 such an ancient beverage and such a universal um, sort of totem for in so many different ways. That, you know, it's it's um so the so the but it, but in lots of ways before I started writing the book, I took coffee for granted. It, it seemed to me a very ordinary object. Um, you know, when I when I look at your titles, you guys, you know, ocean is just it. It sounds enormous to me. You know, and 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 bird. I feel um, th that's easier for me to access, Eric. You know that it's because it's also something that I'm a, a, in daily contact with birds. Cell tower uh, and environment. I'm again. I'm daunted. Coffee. I supposed that I would not be daunted. And so what happened was, of course, I you know I was surprised by how daunting the project became. Um, but I think my relationship, I mean, in, in terms of the way my relationship to, to coffee has changed, so it, it's, it's, it's both more and less magical, you know, there's a lot of science around coffee, but also um, we drink, the coffee we drink is much better now. Um, and all, as a family, um, having written this book, all of our associations, you know, I mean, I think we all think about coffee a lot more than we did. Uh, we think about it personally and we think about where it comes from and the fact that, um, you know, that, that most coffee comes from very far away. Um, so, so those are some of the ways that it, it's, it's the same and different. Rolf, you something? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I, so I have to say, I, I love the, the this assembly here of the objects that we have, because uh, who doesn't begin the, the day with a cup of coffee? So I have to immediately think of you. I step outside, you know, I, I sit down and uh, I listen to the hummingbirds uh, that are out here in Arizona. And uh, then, you know, and on a good day, I call my, my daughter who studies in Germany. And uh, and I think about retirement in the ocean before <laughs> I turn to the you know to the task of analyzing water for all the new toxins du jour. Um, so uh, so all of these cell tower of course came in, and uh, so all these objects are very much represented. I think for the the way uh, my relationship to the environment has changed, maybe not so much, but more my understanding has improved with the pandemic. 
of uh, how much we are actually capable of changing. And I'm, I'm an optimist, in turn, despite the fact that I see a lot of toxins doing a lot of bad things, I, I am optimistic that we can get a handle on it. But I think the outlook when I wrote the book was very different on what we are capable of uh, you know, changing in ourselves around us. And, and who would have predicted that, that we are capable of staying home, of not traveling, right? Of, uh, of not eating out and all the things, not going to work, wearing masks in the most unlikely places, you know, and even cars and stuff. So I think the, there is an appreciation in, in me and hopefully in others too, that we are not as limited in the ability to change as we often feel we are. And uh, because that's what's, what it really uh, needs and what's required in order for us to create that future environment in which we can all thrive. And, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm in heart and, you know, and, and happy to see that, uh, that there is more on our end that we can do than I was able to see before. And so in that, that way, I, I see the environment in a different way than each of you too. So um, I'll just say, you know, that I think I too am an optimist. Um, and yet, you know, I think my relationship to the material in bird has changed post pandemic um, in that, you know, I, 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 I hate feeling like saying, like I'm saying, I told you so, right. But I feel like a lot of the stuff that I was working through in the book. And I mean, Rolf touched on it, you know, this sense of, you know, we establish these illusory boundaries between, um, you know, what's me and what's the planet, right? Or what's like a safe ecosystem versus a degraded one, you know, when those divisions are not real, <laughs> um, they're, they're imaginary and they're problematic. Um, and they, they want, they, you know, they create the conditions in which we find ourselves, right? Um, we are not, I like, Steve had this line, um, we are not singular selves, right? And I think for me, the, you know, post pandemic really feeling like, you know, that lesson needs to get hit home a little bit more. Um, and, you know, then let alone, um, you know, what we're experiencing in terms of the movement for black lives in this, in this country. Um, and, you know, thinking about the entry that I read today, you know, I, when that episode between Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper happened in Central Park, I'm sure everybody followed this story, right? It's like, oh shit, that's exactly, you know, that's exactly what, you know, I was describing and what, and, you know, I don't want to take credit for it because J. Drew Lanham, um, an ecologist, um, has has written extensively and eloquently about um, the perils of being a black birder, right? Um, so, um, and I, I am an optimist. I think, you know, there are lessons to be learned from all of this and learning that's happening as we speak. And yet I also feel at moments disheartened to see that in human history, we don't seem to be and I'm on one level very good at, at learning these lessons and, and changing our behavior. We're, 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 we're so good at forgetting them. It's, I mean, it's similar, you know, 
Eric, the, the thing about coffee is that it comes from far away and the, um, we think of it as sort of this American, just for instance, this American thing where we get up and we have our, you know, cup of chocolate nuts, you mm -hmm. know, which in fact is coming from Africa somewhere. So, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Steve? I, I mean, I, I also think that, um, you know, one of the things that has, has like, I've been thinking about as I've been listening to everybody talk just now is this kind of both the desire to move past the singular self and also to assemble a kind of community. Um, I think that the thing I'm writing about in the chapter I read from in Ocean really is about the way in which the ocean asks for different kinds of communal living. Um, the ship is one fantasy of this in the 19th century or, or the or the swimmer. Um, but the, that there are different, like at the moment in which we recognize the, the sort of prison of the singular self is insufficient, it then makes necessary all these different kinds of contingent plural structures. Um, uh, and I also think about, and this is one of the things I've been thinking about in reading all of your books, um, for both me and for Rolf, Rachel Carson is a really important figure, um, um, a kind of, um, you know, ocean scientist hero for, for both of us, I think, and the way in which Carson represents a kind of ethic of um, generosity and care, um, which is beyond, beyond the individual, beyond the personal self. Um, uh, that, I guess that's one of the things I think of when I'm wrestling with really what is the both the status of the ocean and the present and also the status of you know of our our singular lives each of our singular lives in the present too yeah uh, steve rachel carson i think she's she is similarly a person who was very unlikely <laughs> to effect mm -hmm. the change that she did and and it reminds me of what happens right now with the like lives matter you know yeah. and everything else i mean there is just if you find the right time you know the right energy then there is this wormhole where you can just bypass all the barriers that are always there and for some reason at some moment in time they are not there and then there are brave people that are at the right time in the right space and they walk straight through and get to places that that others really have no chance ever getting because they might not have that you know that opportunity and uh, i feel that happened also for for greta um, thunberg and 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 i hope it happens again and there's there's good things happening <laughs> despite what we have to live through right now and it's, it's a time to you know sit back and, and and reflect on where we are and who we want to be and and how we want to kind of finish our lives and and prepare the future for others and i think all of the things we see right now in the news and and that the, and the <laughs> moments that we capture in our books they they remind us uh, of that mission i'm not going to close down this conversation but i want to get folks' brains turning a little bit about questions you might have for our five writers. And um, if you do have questions, the two ways that you can signal that you'd like to ask are typing it in the chat, either directly to me or to the group in general, and I'll sort of, I'll read it aloud um, for all of us. Or if you raise your hand, which is actually a technological thing that's possible in this Zoom window. If you see at the bottom of your window, there's a button that says participants. And if you click on that button, a window will open in the top right with the names of everyone in this chat. And there should be a couple of little icons at the bottom of that box. And one is a blue hand. And if you click that blue hand, um, I will be able to see that you're raising your hand uh, and we'll call on you. Um, but let's let people percolate for a second. Any last thoughts on, on, on 
on the conversation we've just been having that you're I, the third I, I wanted to to just quickly pick up on something that that, that Steve Steve Jones said um, about um, the immaterial and paranoia. Um, because I've been thinking, I mean, it's obviously something I think that as we are left, on, left as, as we are, in a sense, brought out of our ordinary lives into this experience of solitude and spending a lot of time looking at highly populated Zoom screens. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, I'm, that I got you right, Steve, that you said paranoia is not about nothing um, and that there's this, this like powerful desire to make sense of a world that is just always a little bit outside of our of our grasp. Um, I love those depictions of the Florida landscape with the like the partly hidden but not entirely hidden cell towers and I've actually been been looking around in my Connecticut landscape trying to trying to you know follow your pattern a little bit but the the idea that there's this hidden order which is doing its best to stay hidden like to to un um, to unpresent itself to us, and that part of our—I don't know—maybe our job or our our, um, our capacity as thinking, observing people is to try to decipher this invisible infrastructure. I, I don't know. I've been I've been thinking about that. Yeah. No. I. That's that's really good. I. I mean. I think in on in some ways my idea was much more simple-minded, which is that actually they are out to get you. Uh, you know, sometimes that's a, so you know that old joke. But it's true. I mean, it, there's an example yeah. in the book of a designer cell tower in Italy, that's a beautiful obelisk. You know, with with Murano glass tiles, millions of tiny Murano glass tiles lit from within, on the on the piazza. Uh, but it it contains hidden cameras and part of its purpose is not just to be a cell tower but to be a kind of you know surveillance uh tool mm -hmm. uh for wow. the for the neighborhood uh and the cameras can be attached to the outside too and they look like little animals and birds uh so that they you know they're cute in this kind of abstract way they have a kind of kind of euro modern uh, kind of uh, aesthetic uh, so you know there is a strange kind of um infrastructure like that is one example of this larger issue that everybody's been talking about, which is the, uh, the kind of boundary between the made world, the human and the natural mm -hmm. world that we inhabit and how we inhabit it. Um, and and there's, 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 at the same time, there are these sort of, you know, let's admit it, political and economic forces mm -hmm that are sometimes, you know, what we're paranoid about. And <clears throat> it's not that the cell tower causes the virus so much as that it's always listening to you, you know. That mm -hmm. part. So that, that so it is. It there's an interesting kind of. Um, I mean, but what what lies behind it in some ways? I mean, is us, right? I mean, to, this is the old Luddite project. We we made the damn things, you know, and installed them and and authorized them and the construction of all of those phones in in you know in the labor practices that create those phones we're we're all responsible those of us who use this technology and i think in some ways that's what we're most afraid of is the sense that behind all of this infrastructure is something that we've wrought you know something that we've we've created and then, uh, and then try to deny so anyway that's i know were you going to say something I just was going to say, and we continue, you know, as much as we, um, you know, rail against all of it, we continue, you know, try to disconnect. I mean, who wants to really disconnect, you know, and, and I mean, at the moment, um, I, I'm, you know, 
I and everybody else I know is sort of fed up, for instance, with, say, a, a Facebook. But if you're um, fed up with Facebook, then, then you have to also give up Instagram, and I couldn't possibly. So, um, <laughs> so you know, there's just a way in which we are so tangled up in it that it's easier Absolutely. to put head down, and that's the problem. Absolutely. You know, this at Kashmir Hill did this excellent piece uh, last year, you know, about where she tried to do without the major stacks, the major platforms. And so that even when you think you've turned one off, you know, their the tentacles reach pretty far and you're still connected. So And it's yeah, easier exactly. to just pretend that you don't know that it's happening. And, and, and yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think, you know, on that note, I mean I I like the cell tower as in a way, um, you know, an object lesson to do to <laughs> um, in and of itself in what the series is trying to do, right? This idea that, you know, these books are always asking, all of our books, I think, are asking us, you know, that, that idea of the hidden lives of these things that we take for granted. And what's, what's really operating, um, you know, it, when we, what, what's really operative when we, you know, drink a cup of coffee or you know, admire a bird outside our, uh, our window. Um, and I, I, so for instance, like when you're talking about a technology, Steve, I think about like nature as a technology too. I mean, it's absolutely a technology that we use right. that we've created um, and that we have lost the ability to see it for what it is. Um, and that blinds us to all sorts of, um, realities and, and consequences of our actions. Yeah, I think that's very good. You know, Tim Morton, the ecologist and philosopher, says that, you know, nature itself is the problem. The, the construct mm -hmm. of nature uh, is the thing that gets in the way of our sort of confronting the world, you know, that we look at. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, and, and Tim also comes at that in part from reading Romanticism, right? I mean, he's he's a Shelley scholar. In fact, before he became a sort of international eco-star, but um, like the idea of the ecology without nature, it always seems to me comes so much out of the world of these 19th century Romantic poets who are, who are trying to transcend the human into this kind of um, deified understanding of the, you know, the sea, the ocean, the mountain. Um, but it you know you never quite get all the way out and, like you're always caught in this sort of egotistical loop well and and partly you know steve because they're trying desperately to do it in the midst of industrialization right you know, so, you know, yeah. So, yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah thank you i'd love to pivot us to some questions if that's all right i have some have started coming yeah, in yeah. um uh it's i hope that this will continue to sort of cement conversation uh maxi jane wants to know as a question for you dinah which i imagine will be applicability to others too. Uh, she says, Diana, thank you for that beautiful reading. You mentioned the task was daunting. Did your experience with your morning cup of coffee help you gain a fresh perspective each day you were writing? Did you find part of the daunting nature of your task, the careful dance between your memory and memoir and the study of something that is so personal to everyone else? You have such a gift for making us see ourselves in everything you write. Can you tell us more about that? I, I shall try. Thank you. Thank you, Max. Um, so, uh, so the first part of that was, um, did the coffee help me get past the, the daunting uh, nature of the task? And, and it did, you know, the coffee 
um, what I discovered about coffee as a metaphor was that, um, it, it, you know, if I was in trouble I, with the writing, then I had a cup of coffee. Um, when I woke up in the morning and, and I had that cup of coffee, I thought, oh, well, I can do this. I, I you know, with those first sort of early morning thoughts. Um, uh, and and in terms of in terms of the balance, I think you were asking about the balance of sort of memoir and writing about something that's important to everybody else. That was a a, a very great draw for me. Um, to to uh, you know, I I did in fact, and and it's included in the book. I sent a questionnaire to sort of thirty five odd uh, people that I knew and asked them about their associations with coffee. Um, I think in order to bolster my feeling that it was that coffee is personal and that a, a large part of telling um, of writing this book was was going to be about uh, the personal connections that other people make, not not just me. Um, so yes, I and I I don't know what the last part was. Uh, that I think that was the the dance between memory memoir and the study of something that's personal yeah, to everyone. So yeah, and such yeah. a great question. It was really helpful to jump out of my own skin and talk to other people about coffee. Thanks. Other questions? Welcome. I am curious to ask. While while other folks are still are still thinking, I was surprised at how much I heard an ethic in everything that all of you read about, that there's an ethic that sort of orbits around the object that you talk about. I imagine that there would be reflections on the meaning of this object in our society, but it seemed like there was a, an argument that emerged or seemed to start to emerge about um, how we might be in the world and how we are uh, and how we might reconsider ourselves. And I, that your mention of Rachel Carson made me think of that. So I'm curious if that was something that feels true to you. And if so, what is what would you say is the ethic that you're suggesting to us and, and did that, was that something that was always in your mind when you started working on this object or is that something that emerged for you in the course of thinking about it? You asking me? All of you, yeah. Okay, uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I to answer. this is something I really struggle with because I have a sense that the, our ethics didn't grow as quickly as our ability to travel and to consume items that come from far away like coffee, right? So we lost touch you know, from this communal sense of where things come from, how how much effort goes into creating them and uh, you know the people behind the product this was something you know, you know in the past that we had a strong connection to and we would consume i think more responsibly because we we saw you know the the uh, the hardship that it sometimes takes to make products and we have completely lost that with globalization because we can't look around the world to see what you know how hard the antipodes are working to make that cheap product that we consume and throw away and don't give a you know even one thought <laughs> if not the second um, and so that happens and then the cell tower came around and information you know is flowing so quickly that that we also our ethics are not catching up with that either so the, the responsibility that arises if whatever you say including us right now on this uh, podcast you know what impact that can have and what responsibility lies with you know communicating to large amounts of people is is an incredible you know it's an incredible job and a responsibility and i don't think we, we're trained and i don't think that even the new generation that grew up online uh, developed that so i think ethics are I, i'm really struggling with that lack of growth uh, that, that, that we, we haven't undergone it and we, we have to in order to succeed in the future I really did. I did. Sorry, I might 
talk about that one just just real quick because I and I love Rolf's answer about ethics as a kind of a, a, an incomplete project, a project that we're in the process of trying to to develop. I, I guess when when I think, I mean, again, this you know my book has this really long span of history that I'm trying to cover, and I think that I was always really conscious of two different ethical stances that were in tension with each other. One is this desire to connect, um, to to go to go places, to bring places together, to connect physically with oceanic beings and people who live on other parts of the world. Um, and also this sense that the ocean is a space of alienation and danger. So I, I um, like this constant, like both in invitation and, um, and expulsion, I guess, like a, a, a dialogue, you know, it's a, the ocean is both a place which all human cultures are deeply indebted to and drawn to, um, but also a place that we can't live in a, in a like literal physical sense. So, so that there's this kind of paradoxical or conflicted nature about the, the ethic. And I, and I think a lot about the duality of that, that we are always in, a, in the process of changing our ethical stance in relationship to, you know, changes with the weather in a very literal sense. I, I, I would just maybe, um put like a slightly different spin, although I love um, and agree with um, what both Rolf and Steve have said, and, and, and both of those things feel very true and close. Um, I think there's also a question as a writer of what's your ethical relationship to the material that you're writing about. Um, and in my case, I mean, I think there was this tension between um, the kind of ethics, lived ethics that I came into the project with, um, certain environmental commitments, say, um, that very much shaped the way that I thought about nature, thought about birds, humans looking at birds, humans looking at nature, um, and yet also wanting to see the birds, right? Like wanting to be true to the birds as they are and not just use them as um, as evidence, right, for an argument. And you know, I I I I think I managed to do both of those things pretty well. Um, but I also felt throughout the process of writing it that that was a tension that I had to fit, find a way to work through. Um, I love uh, Chris's question, though, in the chat box, and I really want to answer that one. Yeah, I think we should get there. I want to make sure, unless Stephen or Dinah, do you have anything you wanted to say about that last thing? Uh, I have an ethic. I, I, you know, that, so for me, so that I think I feel similarly um, to, to Eric that um, my relationship, part of my changing relationship to coffee had to do with um, an understanding that coffee is in trouble. So in that sense, there was an ethic involved. But the larger kind of question for me in terms of coming to terms with what I was writing about had to do with writing about coming to terms um, with your own little square on the screen, if you will, uh, um, with, with my life as it is. Do you know that, the, that there was some way in which I was writing about um, self-acceptance, perhaps? if that makes sense. I, I love that. 
at. And I, I mean, I think that's, you know, to develop from, from Eric's and Dinah's points, the writing about it is a way of modeling uh, kind of the possibility of uh, uh, different kinds of relationships with these objects and with other objects in the world. You know, you write, but you do, even when you're not writing, we have these relationships with objects in the world. And so I, I find it, and it, it, so I tried to uh, ask myself, you know, it's a kind of exercise in, in uh, imagination. What, what's it like to be a cell tower? You know, what's it like to be? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, there's a, a beautiful passage in Walter Benjamin about the Eiffel Tower. Actually, he's quoting somebody else as usual, but it gets credited to Benjamin. But it is, he describes the view from high on the Eiffel Tower whose latticework construction informs modern towers of all kinds, including cell towers. And says that from that height, you know, looking, speaking of Paris, looking around those, everything streams through it, you know, past those, that, that beam construction, that latticework, it becomes a kind of, a kind of prism through which we experience the rest of the external world. So there's a sense in which each object opens another way of viewing the other objects in the world. And I think that's an, that's an ethical imperative as well, to see outside of our own subjectivity, in at least it, it's impossible ultimately, but to make that effort in a kind of dialectical way is, is, is part of what I was, I was looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for reflecting on that and indulging me. Um, I do. I want to. This, I think this would be the best way to bring us home. This question of Chris's, and I'll maybe start with you, Eric. First, um, I'll read it aloud just so for folks who can't see the chat. Um, in the object parade, Dinah described an elementary school parade in which children dressed up as objects. Using each of your topics, what would your costume look like and feature? Go to Eric first. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I'm not sure. I'm ready for the hot seat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> If anybody else is prepared with a costume, uh, I, I would appreciate somebody. Well, you'd have to have a plumage, wouldn't you? No, yeah. I don't. I, maybe. I don't know. I, 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 think, I, I, I think, Eric, that, that you've got the, you know, I mean, you've got the most costume ready of any of us. Uh, but um, but let, maybe we'll flip the order. I went last in the reading, so maybe I'll, I'll, I can go first now. I mean, I, I don't know how to dress up as the ocean. I think that's actually kind of a tricky one and, and part of the um, sort of uh, challenge of thinking with the ocean and the human ocean relationship is the kind of disparity between um, uh, between me and, and it. Um, but, you know, there is that old kind of biological chestnut, right, that, uh, that my body is 70 odd percent salt water and you know the ocean covers 71 percent i guess of the planet's surface i mean there is this kind of um homology or 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 relationship so so there is a way like it'd be a really lousy costume to just show up as a person and say a person is also like salt water <laughs> um but that's the lousy costume i think i would probably go with in, in the parade so, so that's mine. <laughs> I, I have to go next. Uh, the, so what the, the question is, what would the environment wear? In, yeah. 
parade and I think it would wear the emperor's <laughs> non-existing clothes. Why? Because uh, the environment always wears itself outside. It's always there. <laughs> so no matter what you cover it up with, <laughs> it is just the environment, <laughs> right? So that will be my, my quick answer. Let's see who's next. <laughs> Sidana? It's such a great question. Uh, I mean, you should have seen these kids in, the, in this parade. They were so fabulous, the costumes. Um, but, but I think, you know, for me, it, it's, there are so, first of all, there are so many coffee gifts. You can't believe it. You know, you could find inspiration everywhere. But I think probably because I'm, um, I'm fairly vain, um, I would go as a Chemex, you know, and I would, you know, I would, that would be pretty fabulous with a bamboo kind of, you know, collar or belted as such. Sounds good to me. I love that. I, you know, I, I think that, that since mine is sort of object-like already in a material and a concrete way, unlike a couple of the others, it's easy enough to imagine looking like a cell tower, I guess. Uh, you know, that these architects, balls and so on in New York and in, in the early 20th century, people did dress up as buildings and as bridges and structures. So that can be done. But the thing that I think I would actually do is come as one of those panel antennas, you know, the oblong white panels that you see arrayed around the top of the cell tower, because that's the actual antenna on top of the tower. And uh, what's inside of it is really interesting. It actually has three little antennas inside. So you could have that on your back as a kind of reveal. You know, you could say this is, the costume could be kind of two stage, but the front of it would just be plain white, uh, you know, fiberglass uh, uh, or metal. So that's, that's easy enough. I think you're up again, Eric. I, I'm ready now. You guys have inspired me. I'm prepared. Um, although I should say that I hate, I hate dress up. I just really, I don't do like not enjoy costumes. I never have. Uh, it just hasn't been my cup of tea. So my costume is probably going to be bad. Um, but I would say, you know, because so much of the book is about um, romanticizing that plumage and the danger, the dangers that come with um, seeing birds as pretty objects, say. Um, I think I'd be more inclined to dress as a pair of binoculars. Um, and I think especially because so much of the book is about the way we look at birds, um, the way we look about nature, that feels like a more fitting costume, uh, which is a shame because some of the, uh, one of the things I learned, for instance, is that uh, fashion designers regularly visit um, natural history collections to get inspiration from their bird collections. So, you know, you can imagine a fashion designer looking at a, you know, tray after tray of dead birds and like, there's the fall line, right? Um, <laughs> and I was gonna, this is, I think this is a beautiful way to wrap it up. I was gonna propose we could do a reality TV style where you turn off your cameras for 10 minutes and have to come back with a look with whatever you have in the room. <laughs> I think this is, you know, it's good to stay in the realm of the imagination because um, there's a lot of sophistication in your answers. Um, all right. So grateful to have had you all with us. So grateful to everyone who came and joined us. Um, we have copies of the books in the store. If you care to come by and browse uh, or you can order over the phone online, we ship out books to all, all places. Um, let's have one last sort of like 
emotional beaming of gratitude to Eric Anderson, Stephen Jones, Dinah Lenny, Rolf Halden, and Steve Mentz. It was such a pleasure to have you all here. Um, thank you for your work. Thank you for your words, you. your presence. Uh, and thank you all who came for joining us. Take thank care. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, thanks everybody for coming. Cheers, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.